Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a multifaceted contemporary artist whose work centers on themes of humanity, healing, and identity. Through film, fashion, photography, and now sculpture, he points to us to looking at healing ourselves and others. Amati Golding's new touring solo short show, Bring Me to Heal, love the name, which was made with support of the VNA, looks to the restorative work undertaken by Rastafarian and many other communities dealing with intergenerational trauma. And in a radical shift, he applies these same techniques of context, accountability, and compassion to the white British experience. Amate Golding, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Well, first off, let me ask you a little bit about you and your background. How do you describe your identity? Oh, that's an interesting one. It's constantly fluctuating. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was born in London, born in London to my mum, who's a white Anglo-Scottish, so her dad's English, her dad's Scottish and her mum's English. Um, and my father's Ghanaian, my biological dad's Ghanaian, but my stepdad is Jamaican. But I was taught about Rastafari, I was raised as a Rastafarian, and I was raised as a Rastafarian by my white mother, um, which is an interesting thing because it's such a, you know, uh, such a black identity in that sense. Um, but also what, what is really interesting about my upbringing is that my mum was introduced to Rastafari not through um through books or you know reggae music or anything like that like a cultural thing it was actually her dad my granddad was um, a major in the british army and he was stationed in ethiopia and he was actually introduced to emperor Haile selassie he was invited to meet emperor Haile selassie and met him himself and then came back and told my little mum, you know, she was just a little kid at the time, told her about this incredible man and this incredible culture as well. Like, if anyone doesn't know, check out Ethiopian history and, you know, Axum and all of this stuff. It's incredible, thousands of years old. Um, yeah, so my, you know, British major military white Scottish granddad basically was just educating my mum about Emperor Haile Selassie from first-hand accounts. And he just found something magical about this man and this culture and so that's where my mum was exposed to it so as she started growing up she then went to London and then found met you know members of the Rastafarian community and then it started from there so I was actually raised um, predominantly by my mum and um, then my Jamaican stepdad joined who's also Rasta so that was it but I moved all around the country so we lived in London but we're always moving from different houses and then I Went to live in Wiltshire for a little while. I went to live in Cambridge. Uh, we lived in Ghana. Between the ages of 12 and 14, I moved to Ghana, which was a real a real eye-opener for me. Um, I had gone a way? lot when I was... Pardon? In what way? Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's kind of like, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, entering into this world as a, as a Muslim when you wore that headscarf and it just changed your perspective in the worlds that you access. For me... When I was in London, I was a black boy and I was a Rasta as well. So it's even more, you know, you feel like a standard bearer somehow. And we're raised um, learning about African history and everything. So I felt African um, and black. And then when I went to Ghana as a teenager, it was different as a child. I was kind of, you know, wasn't realizing a lot of stuff. But when I went to Ghana as a teenager between 12 and 14, um, being a black boy and now being the only white boy in the village it was crazy you know and also realizing how people responded to me I got priority over a lot of stuff I was treated very differently my family were treated very differently um it was a real eye-opener it was a hard thing to come to terms with as well and it actually gave me insight into first of all my white heritage it kind of introduced me to that fact um but also culturally me being so culturally English which is something that when I'm in England, I didn't feel at all. 
um, and it added a lot of nuance and it actually introduced me to you know just culture and the different roles and worlds that are running alongside each other that we, we all kind of inhabit um, and also how they're so interchangeable depending on the context um, and I think that was one of the formative experiences of my life and then after that you know to add insult to injury after that we then moved to a little village called Soham which is outside of outside of outside of Cambridgeshire so it's proper sticks and then we went back to being the only black people in the village or the only black people for miles and miles and um, having this kind of weird flip of identities and where I'm kind of positioned in certain communities I think that consolidated that experience even more and was just fascinated about how that stuff works you know mm. um, but also it didn't allow me to have that in some ways, I would say an easier, more one-dimensional approach to my blackness and the pains that I might feel or how to deal with being British. Um, it added a lot more nuance. And I guess now would bring me to here. It's the first time I've really been able to focus on that properly and examine what these, what's going on and certain elements of that, which is, yeah, interesting. So, so I don't know if that answers things. your question, but that's... <laughs> it know. does. There's so many things you said there I, I want to ask about. I mean, the first one was this idea that, you know, you move to Ghana and you become the only white boy in the village. Um, yeah. So is that, did you mean that literally is then people perceived you as white? Because I know this will sound probably odd to like British audiences who, who, who only experience whiteness in the context of the UK. But I'm yeah. aware that uh, people who are of mixed heritage when they travel to, you know, various parts of Africa can be perceived not as black because of their proximity to whiteness or did you mean just because of proximity to whiteness through your mother um yeah i mean to be honest even when we went to jamaica there was an elephant uh, an elephant an element with my dad where because he'd lived in the uk now it that was more his proximity um mm -hmm. but for me obviously genetically i am different um and yeah they would call you obruni or bluffo which means white man um, and obviously they could understand the difference between me and my mum, for example. Obviously, there's still levels and blackness is a lot more um, accepting than whiteness. But for me, that even that was a shock to the system, you know, and seeing how I was treated. Like if I was to go into a bank or whatever, I would be in the front of the line. They would come to me and, and deal with me before, you know, or if we're in any professional setting, I'd be dealt with even if there were older people that were, you know, Africans. Uh, local Ghanaians I'll be prioritized um, and at the beginning you kind of um, you kind of accept it a bit because everyone feels special right and you feel like somehow you've earned it because oh finally everyone can see that I am actually really special but no if you're honest to yourself you realize that there's nothing that you've done to earn that it's just this kind of um, you know it's post-colonial condition which I think is so interesting in itself um, but that was a it also allowed me insight into feeling for the first time what my mum might have felt like is quite confusing right this white whiteness is also obviously really uncomfortable for white people because it makes you question yourself and your own value you know and it feels quite shallow and it makes you feel quite vulnerable I guess um, in your own identity or your own values if you're always being given something given a, a priority by a system um, so there was a lot of kind of, yeah, there was a bit of an identity crisis to deal with there and mm. accept it. Um, but then when you come back to the UK, it's, you're black as anything and then it's a lot easier to kind of forget those elements. So with this project, I wanted to lean back into that again and make myself uncomfortable again in the sense of accepting my whiteness and my white heritage as well, because for me it's ancestral as well as just being an English boy, you know. Um, which even in that is hard for me to say. I'm not used to saying that. I still don't feel English in that sense, but I know that I am, you know. So that's also a really interesting point. So I, I was asking actually um, uh, a friend of mine who's a mixed heritage. I was like, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, pride in his black identity, which, you know, I fully uh, understand, especially in a context of a country where that black identity isn't valorised, isn't given prominence, isn't given the respect due to it. Mm. And I said, is there anything about your white identity that you take pride in? Wow, you asked that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, these, 
someone I'm close enough to that I can ask that question to. But yeah. um, but I would but I would love to pose it to you as well if that's okay because yeah. I I do want I do not not that I I'm asking because I think you should have pride in white yeah, identity. In fact, I, I really question whether there should ever be any pride in anything with the label white in it. But that isn't the same as saying you don't have, yeah, but I, but it's not the same as saying that I don't know that you couldn't have pride in, you know, I'm half Irish. Like there's a lot in my Irish ancestry right. that I'm really proud of. There's big parts of my identity as a French, uh, on my French side that I'm also really proud of. So uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the culture and the history, uh, you know, European history, are there parts of European history that I can be proud of? Yes. But anything, as soon as you attach white to the label, mm -hmm. for me, that's almost like a different a conversation. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so how, how do you negotiate that? Would you say that you celebrate, you know, would you say you're proud of your black identity and, and then would you re uh, subvert that and, uh, you know, equate that in the same way to the white side or how would you, yeah. how would you sort of navigate that? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question, you know, and I've been asking that to a few people as well. I never really asked it to myself necessarily, so it'd be interesting to see what I say. But um, just before I get into that, I think it's so important, like in a holistic approach, and again, like coming back to the Rastafarian ancestry, understanding where you come from and being happy with your ancestry is extremely important for your mental, but also spiritual foundation. And so I feel like for a lot of mixed race people, there's a lot of shame, misunderstanding, wanting to distance from that white side of things. And I do think that that leaves you spiritually and emotionally uh, unbalanced, if you know what I mean. There's some self-hate basically in there. Mm. Um, for me, yeah, I'm extremely proud of my, because you've worded it, white heritage. Yeah, but the, you know, the specific cultures there. And I think when, well, when I was younger, I would always say my mum was just Scottish. I would ignore the Englishness, which is why I say it's hard for me to say I'm an English boy, because mm. that for me is, you know, the British Empire is the English Empire, ultimately. Mm. Um, and there's whole legacies of colonialism within the UK, like more recently with England, Ireland, Scotland, you know. Um, so for me, I could identify more with the Scottish culture and identity I'd never been there only recently because I've got exhibitions that I've been up there and my family were quite big up there so I didn't meet any of them but um yeah for my culture that was something I was very proud of but the English thing is something that I'm becoming more proud of now mm. um Brand was from up north so again that's another separation oh the north they're, they're kind of all right uh, you know um so we can have more compassion there but um yeah there's a lot that I'm there's a lot that I'm proud of of my white ancestry and even more so now that I'm looking into it. Um, but white, the, the white label, just generalising it as white and not looking at the specific cultures. Um, proud is a different, is a, is a weird thing, but I own it and it's definitely part of me and I see mm. it manifested as well. And one thing that I think is really interesting with the, you know, the intergenerational conversation that I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit is that, um, a lot of, you know, it hasn't been an easy life. You know, we, we had a lot of struggles growing up. And what was interesting is because I was a black boy, a lot of that I felt was associated to that. Mm -hmm. um, but my mum for me was invisible. She was my mother. I didn't really racialize her so much until a lot later on. Um, but a lot of our family issues came from the white line, if you know what I mean. A lot of these unresolved issues, traumas, addiction or whatever it might be. Um, and I don't mean just addiction to like alcohol or something, but just like bad relationships with things, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, yeah, so which is fascinating. And so like being able to see that in myself and actually say that there's a lot of pain and trauma that's part of the white experience that needs to be looked at and healed somehow. Um, you know, healthy people don't really hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, you know, that kind of mm. basic saying. So yeah. I want to like, you know, track the hurt and follow that string of, of pain and see where it leads us, you know, with regards to the white context. Um, but also seeing myself, so I will ex describe myself as white the same way as I would describe myself as black. I know mm -hmm. it's obviously different um, connotations and, and limits to that, but um, just for a personal kind of um, exercise, it's important for me to own that stuff and not externalize anything that's negative away from myself. Because I think also when you're mixed race, you're able to do that. You know, human nature, you can pick and choose 
with your identity a bit. And so a lot of people mm -hmm. tend to identify with a, a uh, an identity that's a bit more victimized. I think mm -hmm. a lot of us, you know, because everyone is victimized to some degree, right? Um, or has struggles, so it's easier to identify with. But um, I need I to open that. Also, because race is something that's usually ascribed to you, right? Which is like, regardless, like if you walked into a room and you were like, I'm white, which technically you're correct, you are half, yeah. uh, you know, how many people in the room would acknowledge that, to, you know? And, so, so right, and and so yeah. it's it and it's it's same with I think like white passing people actually who might say I'm black and people will say well what do you know about being black and I've had friends you know I had a, a half Scottish half Nigerian friend who you know I, I mean if she hadn't told me she was half Nigerian I honestly would never have guessed I might have thought she was Spanish or you mm. know um and so she had that a lot when she moved to the US you know she was, I remember her trying to join uh, the black society on campus and being told she couldn't join because what did she know about the black experience and she was mm. like I was literally born in Nigeria like <laughs> I, I was literally born in Nigeria like I'm actually African mm. I'm Nigerian I'm you know but it but it was about how she identified or how she felt it was about how people perceived her and she could pass for yeah. white and so there were many people who felt that that didn't make her able to relate to people yeah. who you know can't escape the ascription of of their racial identity yeah. um and then I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about kind of the the, the sort of looking into the layers of what white white identity whiteness can mask a whole variation of identities you know a lot of yeah and, and I think a lot of Irish Welsh and Scottish people for example a lot of working class uh you know coaling communities let's say or mining communities in the UK who you know had the same techniques applied to them you know when they were rebelling against the center of empire as was uh, applied to uh you know rebe rebellious uh, people in in the colonies you know so so exactly. there are nuances I think even within whiteness that the conversation on whiteness can seem to flatten and uh, for me especially I guess as an Irish uh, you know I'm half, half Irish uh, you know there's there's a lot of Irish people that would still say that Ireland is still occupied you know yeah, well exactly you know. Yeah. Part of Ireland is still occupied and, and Ireland was occupied for a yeah. very long time in a brutal, yeah. uh, brutal occupation. You know, my own uh, great grandfather was was killed by paramilitary, paramilitary uh, British groups uh, called the Black and Tan. Uh, so it's interesting yeah. that, you know, sometimes these conversations can obscure the ways in which uh, white identities are not just one cohesive group. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about being raised Rasta and how this influenced how you think about trauma and healing because it seems to me that firstly uh, Rastafarianism does not receive the respect that it ought to in terms of a spiritual outlook uh, as terms of a philosophy as, as terms of you know uh, a spiritual knowledge and the wealth of knowledge within that outlook um, and and I, I sense from your work that your very, in, in an incredible position to actually convey that uh, to mass audiences in fact. So so tell me about um, how how Rastafari, Rastafarianism and, and that identity has influenced your <laughs> perception of healing in trauma. Well thank you by the way. I do feel like really proud and honoured to be part of the Rastafarian legacy in that sense and you know I've, I've definitely interpreted it in my own way like we were quite a a unit as a family and we traveled so many places so I wasn't part of a big Rastafarian community growing up or anything like that it was definitely us as a family and our um, thing and it varies for a lot of people but yeah I feel like Rastafari is something that has had such a profound influence e even here in England you know but Absolutely. civil rights movements and a lot of uh, you know um, black raising black self-esteem Rastafarians were always at the front line of that and even when it comes to things like now, it's so frustrating, but I chuckle sometimes because, you know, now everyone's eating whole foods, eating ital or vegan, being healthy, meditating. And I'm just like looking at herbal medicines and even just, you know, uh, weed in itself, you know, what it can do. And it's like, man, Rastas have been saying this for so long and being so oppressed for it and being so shooed, you know, and then now it becomes this mainstream thing and there's no 
credit to the legacy of of these people that made this you know or ra raised this awareness i think also what's quite exciting about rastafari for me is that even though it feels so ancient um especially with the rastas in the hills which is where i ultimately would love to end up you know like living off the land and this kind of um more connected existence but yeah with these guys like Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was just imagining just being there, and I was just like, mate. You, you, you were already up in the hills, enjoying yeah, the life. The hills and I, just, I just missed it. But, but, um, but yeah, no, basically, um, it's, a, it's a legacy that I'm extremely, extremely proud to be, to be part of, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and so how does it inform how you think of um, healing and trauma? And I guess I'm yeah. asking part, part, partly because healing, you know, Healing is like the new buzzword of like the Instagram generation. Like mm. everyone needs to heal. You need to, you know, you, you need to focus on healing yourself, which, you know, obviously theoretically, I'm sure we all agree on, but what does it mean from your spiritual perspective and how are you applying that to, I guess, a societal vision? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like um, it, with Rastafari, I understand, first of all, like, there's no division when it comes to like history and spirituality and all of this stuff. It's all ingrained with your ancestry. And it's just putting that emphasis on understanding who you are and where you've come from and dealing with things like colonial, the effects of colonialism and mass traumas to a community and understanding how that manifests in your today, right? So slavery, you know, people, Rastafarians always talk about slavery and the impacts it's had and how that um, that impact influences them today when they know that they didn't experience those specific things. The line between like cause and effect, I guess, when it comes to the emotional legacy of certain events is shrinked in a way that with the wider society is very separate. It's like, oh, well, it didn't happen to me, then that's it. Let's kind of draw a line under it and move on in this notion or the ignorance that you can do that, that it's within your power to do that. So with Rastafari, what I love is they lean into the painful moments in history with, and process that, you know, so many med meditation and reasoning sessions is about understanding that and then how to transcend it as well, mm. you know, and I just think that's time spent reasoning on those kind of elements, you know, is central to, was definitely central to my up upbringing, but also reggae music, you know, it was like sermons, we could be anywhere in the world, I could be in Soham, but I've been getting songs from Sizzler, Capleton, or even the old Bob Marley and, and Gregory, these kind of people. And you're learning about history. You're learning about it in a contemporary context. And just to go back, when I kind of drifted off thinking about living up in the hills, I was just saying that even though it feels so ancient, it's a very new mode of being, Rastafari. Mm. Uh, Emperor Ali Selassie was coronated in 1930. That's a very new, recent time. Like I said, my granddad met Emperor Ali Selassie, you know. So even though it's taking on a lot of ancient traditions, it's mm. been able to, I think, create itself in relation to the contemporary context in a way that I think other others aren't because they're a lot older and more established. So Rastafari, for me, is a, a way to understand those ancient learnings you know like obviously it's based in the bible um but what does that mean in this contemporary context how does that manifest itself you know and especially when it comes to things you know you hear a lot like a babylonian systems or roman systems and they use that interchangeably as well it's just this big society colonial machines and how that changes your spirit as a person how that changes your energy or your vibrations and that stuff for me i think is at the focus of a lot of the ways that i move through stuff and like analyze things um and definitely this white conversation um i don't know i think there'd be a lot of rasters who are a bit like huh? even my dad would be like what on earth are you doing with this but this compassion and the way that we lean into our pains uh in and trying to understand them to create a more like equitable future i guess mm. I'll do that with my white ancestry you know i did i've never done that properly with that and mm. understanding where these exploitative systems why they're so central to everything we do why we've got so much addiction and stuff as a as a white culture and also if you think as a legacy of where england has gone and you know you you can tell what was it what's that line something about the fruits you know the fruits of something will tell you about whether it's good or not you know yeah and, um i think anywhere that we've gone if you look what we've left behind 
you know, so much just trauma and pain, you know, addiction. So many of these tribes and, and indigenous peoples that we've come into contact with and seeing their quality of life now and the environment, you know, we're on the edge of environmental collapse, you know, and we've been one of the biggest influences over the past 500 years of the planet, like culturally. We've got to start looking at ourselves and seeing what is this kind of, what's the pathology we're part of? What are these things that keep manifesting that are constantly unhealthy and, and disconnected? I think that's the thing as well. We're so disconnected from so many processes. Um, mm -hmm. So this was fascinating for me. And um, yeah, that's what I started looking into. How do you understand the relationship between whiteness and Babylon? Is Babylon whiteness? No. Uh, I think that whiteness, actually, I think one of the genius things, like genius by accident, is that whiteness um, takes the spotlight away from a lot of other processes that are happening, which, mm -hmm. you know, precede it, which preceded it. And I think... Yes, it's a it's an important element, 100%. Obviously, we, we know the, the, the pain and the violence that's been caused by it. But it was a relatively recent invention. And a lot of these, you know, the kind of wheels of the true exploitative, like Babylonian or Roman systems, um, were happening long before this idea, this contemporary idea of whiteness was in, invented. And it, it was kind of like a eureka moment, I guess, when whiteness, you know, I guess there was so much more solidarity between working white people from mm. different white, various white cultures that were being exploited within Britain and, you know, then the African slaves that were then brought over. You know, even if you think about the um, the mining, the um, the mill strikes, you know, the cotton mill up in Lancashire when they were like, no, we're boycotting this. And, you know, a lot of people were in really dire situations, but they felt that connection still because of the ways that they were being treated. So this moment of like being able to roll with this white category now, it's just a new category. There were so, you know, we had serfs here, we had slaves in the UK in that sense, and the working class were treated terribly. And if you could change the names and places, you would think, what, this is like, this could be, you know, in like some sort of, you know, Caribbean colony or something, the way that mm -hmm. the poor were being tr used and exploited and rules were arbitrarily being made up just to generate more wealth for certain communities and exploit mm -hmm. others. There's, there wasn't really a difference. It was just, we want to exploit, we want to keep taking, you know, it's that kind of pathology in any way that we can justify doing it or create a new way to do it, we will. And so, you know, you've got white indentured workers or slaves and blacks working alongside each other and then separate them you know you have that lack of solidarity divide them a bit more and obviously given a bit of um space you know obviously the white people kind of said yeah we'll have that it's nice to have a power over someone else but i think even that is so late down the line of where our traumas and uh, started from and these exploitative relationships with each other um but yeah, it's a relatively it's relatively new for me. So no, it's not Babylon. It's not the same thing. It's just another um, manifestation of that kind of mindset, I would mm -hmm. say. But it's not the whole thing at all. And and what about? Um, I'm sure you've probably been asked this before. But when you focus on um, sort of the idea of Anglo-British trauma and the idea of kind of, I guess, a compassionate perspective on yeah. that and the idea of healing it, um, some people might say um, that you're kind of expressing compassion towards the oppressive group at a time where actually there's still a lot of trauma uh, and oppression of yeah. uh you know black and brown communities yeah. and and so you know uh what would you say to someone who says well well how do you justify focusing on white trauma when actually that you know whiteness is still oppressing us we're still living trauma you know and as the we in that is is black yeah. and brown communities who might feel that way mm um it's interesting man this is the question and it's, it's so fascinating for me but ultimately i would do first of all i need to separate i think whiteness is something that um is stopping us from really being able to um 
have solidarity, first of all, because there's a lot of shared experiences. There's so many similarities and, and parallels between the way that white communities are being treated and exploited and blacks. That's it. Um, so I think that actually being able to talk about how we have these similarities could create more solidarity. Um, and I think that's a big um, that's a big part that we're missing. But also, I think there is a community and there's a reason there's a, a, a kind of environment that has created a certain behavior and that behavior continues to happen. Uh, for me, one thing that's been a bit frustrating is that there's incredible work. So people that I've been looking at is like people like Dr. Joy DeGruy. She did post-traumatic slave um, syndrome, which was talking about intergenerational trauma and how it affected the African-American community. Mm. Or, you know, there's a lot of Jewish scholars that are looking at how intergenerational um, trauma relates to um, the Jewish context and, and so on. But what frustrates me is people do this work communities do this work they look into themselves they look at their issues and they try to resolve it and in doing so they develop um vocabularies vocabularies and a better understanding of these processes and then because we're in a white dominated society inevitably those ideas have to be communicated to white communities and there's such a gap in the vocabulary and the understanding between these groups that the communication can't happen you know like certain concepts aren't even a concept <laughs> to certain white communities and mm -hmm. so they're so far behind with certain vocabulary or certain ways of understanding the situation that you can't just develop isolated and think that that's okay you know mm -hmm. again with rasta they say everything is everything is there's just a saying and it sounds really obvious right but everything's interconnected and the way that i understand that is that you we can't really truly internalize these divisions that we have we are a human race right and if we go off and say ah oh, okay i'm in my little ghanaian community and we're going to do our work and then think that that can solve all of our problems like we are part of an you know a connected society and ultimately we have to be able to share our thoughts and have helpful dialogue with white communities as well and so if we don't extend and see how these concepts also apply to that context then we're not going to be able to have those conversations together and grow as a as a unit you know as a nation let's say there's always mm -hmm. going to be those divides so ultimately i think it's the only way that we can take that next step you know um especially like after the george george floyd stuff i've never seen conversations around race in this way or entertained by the people that it's been entertained by mm. but i think still the way that a lot of white people approach it is something where it's it's not embodied it's it's very cerebral it's let me give you space this is something that i could never understand let me let me give you space but it still creates that kind of white savior dynamic in the sense where mm. um it's a very separate project where they're kind of given a handout in a sense. Um, I think that being able to understand and each community has their own legacies and their own ancestry line that they need to deal with, but being able to understand where the pains and traumas are, where does all this fear come from? You know, um, a lot of people understand that, you know, with a lot of nationalist or white pain, there's a lot of fear and vulnerability. But what I see sometimes is people kind of mocking that a bit, you know, like, oh, they're so scared. Well, what are they scared of? You know, when you see like Nigel Farage's crew saying it's an invasion when a kind of deflated dinghy rolls up on the shore or something. Like, what kind of traumatic mindset do you have to be in to truly? Because I don't think people are just saying that. I believe that I've seen really fearful white people. And when I speak to people and take time to talk to people, especially around here. It You're in Norwich for anyone listening. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I'm yeah. in Norwich, right? Which is yeah. like. Yeah, maybe we're getting some stories about that. But basically, there's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of fear within white communities. And a lot of people would think that that is, you know, unfounded. Where does that come from? But that's the questions we should ask. Where does it come from? And let's what, genuinely... what, what's your view on that? Where do you think that fear is coming from? <clears throat> well, my, um, my theory on this, um, and it is just working out. I'm an artist, so I'm allowed to traverse between different, you know, worlds and history and science and all of that and just make it up as I go along it's my job I guess um why we love artists yeah <laughs> why we love artists yeah. right um but for me if you look at English history there's never been a portion of it that's been safe really 
um, people have constantly been exploited, you know, even when you think about, you know, the different battles. So let's start at the beginning, which it wasn't the beginning, but with the Roman invasion, right? The way that the Romans came in was brutal. They went straight for the cultural epicenter first. So off Anglesey, there's a place called Anglesey Abbey. It's like this island off Wales. Mm. They went right to that. And that was the Druidic stronghold, right? For the whole of Europe as well, because a lot of Europe was um, Celtic, but, you know, the Druid was their kind of um, spiritual leadership system, I guess. Mm. But the Romans went straight. They literally blitzed their way all the way through to destroy that and it was an island and they destroyed everyone women children all the druids burnt down the ancient oak groves everything and the thing is is that with that culture like a lot of african culture as well there's so many parallels here um it was oral so there was no written tradition so they knew that by you know pushing it underground and actually destroying the central hubs and destroying the people who carry it which is like librarians right similar to like the griots you know the the, the people that are you know carrying the history down but if you burn the libraries then what else is there it's just slowly choking out that culture and i think again coming back to the spiritual and cultural hub you need an organized way of preserving that and passing it down otherwise you know and once you lose that anchorage system and a way for your people and your ancestry to understand and process the world around them and heal from it as well because the world's traumatic anyway without us hitting each other with blunt objects you know the environment's harsh um you know especially back then childbirth there's so many traumatic experiences but you have your cultural system and way of processing that romans destroyed that boom straight out now for me that's an extremely traumatic thing in itself losing your cultural and spiritual hub then you've got the actual physical brutality that happened with the Roman invasion. And we all know what happened. So many systems of oppression, so many systems of brut brutalizing, you know, taking all of your, uh, you know, strong, fit or healthy men to fight other wars in, you know, for, for the Romans in, you know, um, as the Roman Empire. Um, what does that do? Like, what's the emotional legacy? Like, just imagine living through some of these experiences, mm. you know. The PTSD that comes from that. What do you teach your children when all the men are being taken away to fight wars that they never wanted to or killed? And yep. then the women are being subject to, I don't even know what horrible kind of stuff. Your culture is being destroyed. Your lands are being taken. Your, your language is being outlawed for hundreds of years. What happens there? And also what's so interesting is England, because it's so fertile, was just like with Africa, when there's natural value that's when you're most vulnerable right and the people become most oppressed so mm -hmm. when the romans came in there england was their strong point you know so they would go out the welsh were solid and they were holding up there obviously they got tormented the 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 picts or the you know the caledonians or whatever they were up in scotland were solid trying to fight it off but england was just constantly that that was the base you know londinum and all of that so what about the people that were living there how did that internalize over hundreds and hundreds of years and then the fall of rome you know the anglo-saxons and all of these guys come in another wave of people and that was kind of like the dark ages but when you think there like no one truly really knows exactly what happens there but it was intense they took over everything you know and you think that you're romano-british now you kind of think you're roman but you've got your other like you know ancient british cultures going on there and then you've got the angles and saxons and everyone that comes in and they're all fighting over you what happens there you know like emotionally what happens to people a lot of people are pushed out and displaced like it's just brutal 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 and within all of these periods this is obviously like i'm talking thousands of years you know there's like nearly 2000 years um, of invasions and different, you know, um, colonial bodies that keep taking over things. But just thinking as an individual living in any of these times, what, how you relate to the world with such pessimism, with such fear, you know, with such anxiety, especially when the power is taken away from you, you know? Mm. And I feel like what's so interesting is being able to uh, feel those or relate to those feelings of how I was growing up when I was uh, 
consider myself like solidly black you know when you're looking at the civil rights movement when you're looking at the lynchings slavery uh, just everyday racism that has a serious effect on your psyche but we're able to lean into it and heal it but i don't know how much healing was really able to be happening in those times um not on a kind of national level or a, a wide cultural level there's nothing that i kind of know of this mm. when these these kind of local ways of healing are constantly being attacked and um dismantled you know and then it keeps going you've got the vikings that come in again and all of these people are known for being very brutal by the way like mm. i guess they're invaders they're not going to be doing it nicely but and then even up until you know the norman invasion you know the whole country like all of england was speaking french you know as in like the the ruling class the you know english was like almost um gone extinct you know because it was only spoken amongst the commoners and the peasants and they were treated treated in such a dis- disgusting way you know and then we were talking about the serfs and how they would be treated the laws were like just you know we think laws are corrupt now and and favor certain people back then you wouldn't even be able to speak the language you were being tried in do you know what i mean you just go somewhere and they're like yeah they did it hang them you have public hangings like mm-hmm. and this is like all forgetting about like just the normal stuff of the day with technology you know like when you think about giving birth in a time like that was like nearly 50% mortality rate or something like this like yeah yeah probably best not to to be honest but yeah so like culturally basically this kind of weird rose-tinted idea we have of an English past or a British past there was never a time that wasn't with serious traumatic things happening and any one of those could be enough to have to focus on maybe healing that um but then if it's like constant you know so many different invasions over such a long period of time um yeah i don't think that there's any you know white english community that hasn't been touched by that and internalized these like really um exploitative and unhealthy dynamics or relationship dynamics so when it comes to how we then relate to other people you know mm. for me it's kind of obvious that we're going to have unhealthy ways of relating to ourselves like understanding ourselves and understanding other people um mm. You know, one with my work, um, what I like to do is I like to create a character that represents Britain, like from the beginning till the end, because again, it collapses that time and like the understanding of how something at the beginning can affect how your present day is, right? Because if you're, I don't know if you do therapy. I started doing therapy about a year or so ago, and it's it's great. But yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, oh, mate, get on it. Yeah. We know that like if something happens to you in your childhood <clears throat> obviously it's going to affect or to be honest not even obviously most of the time a lot of your issues today are based in your childhood traumas right and so if you think about a nation's story um mm-hmm. as an interconnected story obviously they're different generations but they all affect each other it's so important to understand the beginnings of when these you know these identities were forged and what were the circumstances of that So do you connect I suppose two questions in one if I may one do you connect that sort of um you know anglo-saxon trauma those thousands of years of kind of brutal invasions and domination and serfdom do you connect those in an almost like you know fanon kind of way of you know the violence of the colonizers of the colonized is the language of the colonizers you know if you've absorbed that violence over all these years it's the then language is the idiom in which you express yourself exactly. if you've experienced domination you then do, you know you seek to dominate if your cultures if your other ways of doing it have been destroyed because mm. you have a connection and this is why it's so important to understand in your past this is what rasta say right you've been colonized especially in the west indies you know they've been separated from their native languages mm. which is why it's so important to revisit that and say right okay what are my traditional ways of doing this stuff mm. then you can kind of bypass that or at least you've got a way out to develop a new way of being but if mm. stuck in that paradigm that kind of colonizer paradigm and you have no other way out then that's what makes that become you or you become it right so then you go on and just pass that because that's the only way of behaving that you know 
And I love the fact that you, I watched a video that you'd done where you connected, uh, you know, is it Gabor Mate's um, mm. theories around sort of the fact that we have a nation addicted to drugs and alcohol yeah. and all of these things that are technically painkillers and yes. no one's asking the question of what's the pain? Exactly. Yes. Um, and and like, even if you think about how, because it's interesting, if your only point of reference is like you're British or English, you live in England most of the time. If you travel, you travel with English people in that kind of context and you come back, then you're always in a similar paradigm. But when you think about how we're not the default expression of human existence at all, right, which is what we kind of feel deep down, like what we do is just human nature. Mm. Um, but when you actually have another perspective from different cultures or how the outside looks at our culture, it's mm. so much unhealthy shit that people are just like, oh my gosh like these people you know obviously brits abroad the fact that and you know like that small element but even like growing up you know i grew up when i was like kind of you know in my teens i was in cambridge and the thing there is just going out and getting paralytic you know it's not even drinking to just think about things or you know it's always an escapism you know anything mm -hmm. you do seems to have a very unhealthy element to it as a kind of cultural trend and it is a very specific british thing i can confirm because as someone who grew up kind of more in i would say like the french culture side you know mm -hmm. people do drink but the idea of drinking is never re like the objective of drinking is not to get drunk mm -hmm. The objective of drinking in French culture is because people enjoy fine wines or yes. whatever it is that they're drinking or whatever beer that they yeah. enjoy or whatever. But yeah. the idea of specifically drinking in order, for example, not to remember, because I remember this going to university, it was a big culture shock for me personally, meeting people who'd be like, yeah, it was such a good night, I can't remember anything. And me thinking, <laughs> that's a really strange way yes, of... Man. Yes. thinking about a good time yes. um and yes. and so I, I found that really interesting but I wanted to ask you do you think there's something to be healed in also being part of an oppressive structure because I think that for people racialized as white who who do take uh who, who have a realization of the structures of oppression that they have been a part of. You know, I interviewed uh, an, an Australian uh, poet who was t uh, saying to me that, you know, she discovered that her family had been, uh, you know, very high up in like colonial hierarchies and actually she could trace mm. some of her family members to, you know, massacres, mm. you know, huge genocides, mm. um, really hardcore forms of brutality. Mm. And that, you know, she'd inherited, uh, she didn't get much of the wealth, actually, which is also one of these misnomers that actually, you know, you're so, because you're connected to wealth historically, that it's definitely going to manifest somehow. Yeah. She yeah. She was saying that, she was it was also then like an interrogation even of any of the wealth that she did have it was like how much of that has got blood on it how much of it needs to just be given away to kind of rid yourself of like the way that it was acquired and is that a trauma as well would yeah. you say yeah of course there's a trauma there like that's a hard thing it's one of those things where you it depends on how much it um, challenges your identity, I guess. But if mm. you built your identity as being a good person, like Britain has somehow, you know. Which I uh, think is core to whiteness, actually. The idea of goodness and whiteness are... Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's that kind of... Um, yeah, I think for sometimes it can be quite brutal realising that... I mean, ultimately, if you make something that's so unsustainable and an identity that's so unrealistic, it's so unhuman in that sense that you are truly good and you are the saviors of the planet and all of this stuff, it's never you're never going to be able to uphold that anyway. So you're constantly going to be introduced to situations where you've got to choose between your goodness, um, which is your humanity and the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think that's a, a traumatic experience for a lot of people. But also what I look at is because there's the thing where you know your family line epigenetics i don't know if you know much about epigenetics no. I don't know much at all but i don't need to know much to have an opinion on it but basically it's like epigenetics is apparently the way that um genes express themselves so it's not like how you're it's not 
changing the code of your DNA. It's just which one of those genes is on or off or whatever. Okay, yeah. They did tests with mice and they found that they had a group of mice that they exposed to traumatic, so they'd electrocute them. I know it's brutal, right? Every time they'd electrocute them, they'd waft cherry smells in the air. And so these rats would be traumatized their whole life. And every time a cherry smell came on, they'd, you know, be electrocuted. Anyway, they had offspring. And even though the offspring didn't experience the original trauma, any time cherry smells wafted mm-hmm. in the air, they would have anxiety responses, wow. responses to that. And so for me, this is why it's so important to understand for me, your ancestral line spiritually, but also just as it's part of you. These people are literally why you're here today and mm-hmm. you're passing down that story. And so if you don't understand what trauma is like, what, how traumatized or how unbalanced does a person need to be to be part of these horrific events anyway to think that they're a good idea and Mm -hmm. a lot of time people wouldn't be involved with them because they don't think it's a good idea but that in itself is a traumatic experience to be part of something that you don't want to but you're scared into doing it right so either way whether you feel bad about it or not there's trauma there either before which have made them do that thing or after for that individual you know, so I think the trauma is not only guilt and shame. I think it is actually possibly more embodied as well, like in your in your genes. Do you what would you say to someone who might say that this compassionate approach that you're extending to white intergenerational trauma mm. is, you know, you know, possibly misplaced at this point in time, you know, yeah. uh, you know, white people have had a lot of compassion for themselves and very little compassion for yeah. those excluded from whiteness. You know, why do we need to extend compassion to an identity that's actually by and large historically ex- sort of limited compassion to itself? Mm. And is it not more necessary to foster compassion for groups and individuals who've been so dehumanized Mm. that actually, you know, majority white societies struggle to see the problem with, you know, brown bodies washing up on beaches or, Mm. you know, black bodies being brutalized by the police, for example? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, for me, compassion isn't finite. You know, it's always that thing where it's like either or. It's, again, it's this scarcity mindset of like just not being raised with not having any exhaust, uh, resources, you know. So it's like she eats or he eats. But mm-hmm. actually, when it comes to emotional stuff, and we're talking on a much larger scale here, compassionate isn't finite. And I think it for me, it's the only way to get true solidarity because I don't think you can really have accountability, true accountability, without understanding it from a compassionate and empathetic point of view not just like okay I know this thing kind of happened and these people are hurting so what they ask for I'll give them I don't think that's sustainable I think everyone including white people have these traumas and that's one thing that unites us how connected people are to it how the the contemporary power systems are aligned like these are all I mean these would be my biggest fears really is what happens when you extend this out in this context you know we know what like a lot of spaces that traditionally are there for white pain you know um these kind of ukipi bnp spaces Mm. um they're usually very violent they're usually completely unhinged and unbalanced um and there's a lot of legacies of violence from that and so for me the idea is like hmm, how much do i want to talk about this and have one of those people take it on in a way that and not quite understand it and then use it to again, underplay other people's pains, right? Um, But deep down, I just think that, ironically, if we can make safe spaces for white people to be able to process this stuff and to validate and say, yeah, in fact, a lot of this violence, a lot of these problems have come from your pain, you know? So we need to heal that, you know? Um, I think that that, for me, is the only way that I can see it going because we're all humans. We all need to heal from this stuff together um but yeah of course there's dangers in doing that how we do it i have no clue but i think um ultimately that's the only way to go there's just before i finish on that point there's um my girlfriend's auntie is a um, psychotherapist and she works with um, police at the moment actually like you know traumatized police which is a whole interesting thing in itself 
But mm-hmm. um, what she was doing, actually, um, she was working before that. She was working with domestic in a do- domestic violence unit, and she started up a program of offering um, psychotherapy to the abusers wow. because that's the people who are going around and doing the problems right so you can protect the women and hopefully they can overcome it and have new lives but this person is now creating a new victim and a new victim and a new victim and for me I was like that's where the work has to be done you know as well as again it's not finite it's not like now let's forget about the the women women. yeah it's about trying to get to the root of the problem and Mm -hmm. say right how do we stop this from happening you know and I think it's an optimistic approach to say, look, I really believe that, that we can have a world without these things. I really believe that. And I know so many people are like that, mate. Human nature is horrible. I don't believe that because mm-hmm. the amount of intense traumas and lack of healing that's happened and that we're still able to be having these conversations, you know, I, I'm really optimistic about it. But I think it's the same thing. We need to look at the white community and how to truly heal that. And I think we'll all be healed alongside with that. And I think there's something quite beautiful about using the tools that other communities have developed because of into being affected by this community. And those tools that they've developed because of it can be used to hopefully heal that, you know. Mm. But we all know that you dig in when someone comes and attacks you, you get defensive, right? And I think yeah. a lot of this conversation is... Um, yeah is that where people are just holding on to their flags and I think we need another approach to it that's so powerful and actually the first time I've really heard someone um express that from uh, particularly within this conversation yeah absolutely the idea of of kind of looking at healing trauma uh you know the the trauma of the aggressor I think it's probably the hardest uh hardest thing to do when you've been a victim actually is to say you know I need to heal but actually you know and I've seen it actually in restorative justice Mm. that's probably where I've seen it I've seen it with families who've lost someone um who said you know who in some uh, cases have also almost gone as far as adopting the person who harmed or even murdered their child daughter, and you're like yeah. how and they're like because that is my son or daughter but in a different way you know and it's um it's it's incredible when you see it in action so thank you so much for sharing that with us um now we have our quick fire round uh if you like quick fire questions with quick uh, fire responses um what is your definition of whiteness, Amate Golding? Quick fire. Um, my definition of whiteness is uh, one of the many tools that were developed by a group to keep their power. Um, yeah. What is the root of racism? Pain. What is the opposite of whiteness? Hmm. Uh, Oneness, I guess. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is the universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Raceless. Mm. I don't know, there's a lot of pride that people take in I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a kind of silver lining from the race thing where um, there's a lot of pride that people take in that. And I don't think it's all negative. Um, Is a post, I don't know. I think there's a healthier, happier world or a healthy and happy, not even healthier, healthy and happy world that is possible, whether that has race in it or not. I'm not sure. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Amate Golding. Uh, thank you so much for all of your insights and your time. If people want to connect with you and your work, where should they go? All righty. So, um, yeah, my name is Amate Golding. That's A-M-A-R-T-E-Y Golding, G-O-L-D-I-N-G. So you can check out my website, amategolding.com, uh, Instagram, which I don't post anything on um which is a mate golding but i will start doing that a bit more soon um yeah that's it and just google me there'll be things happening 
And you've got some upcoming, uh, you're obviously on tour right right now, <laughs> your exhibition is on tour. Uh, any particular dates or uh, locations you want to flag? Yes, yeah, so the exhibition is just leaving Glasgow now um, and it's coming to London and it will be opening on the 17th of March at 198 Contemporary in Brixton. So do come down, the show's called Bring Me to Heal. And it touches on some of this stuff, um, but it's mainly film, sculpture, uh, we have the largest hand-knotted full-body wig made out of 100% human hair in the world. And it's an incredible object to look at. So do come down if you're interested in any of what we've spoken about, but also I make really lovely objects. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, if people want to find out about other locations up and down the country, they can find all of that on your website. Uh, yeah, the other locations are actually in the past, but you can see what those exhibitions looked like. Um, yeah, that's all on my website. Fantastic. Well, that leaves me just to thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Thank, thank you, you so to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.